Richard, it is awesome for me to be able to be here with you all today, uh, particularly because of the uh, affection and affiliation that I have with Pastor Richard. Uh, I can tell you that back in 1997, in the, the spring of 98, uh, we laughed and we carried on and we got kicked out of the cafeteria a lot. Uh, you know, because, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but because, you know, you know him better than I do, maybe, or uh, maybe you noticed this morning, he seemed kind of low-key, but at lunchtime, he's never low-key. <laughs> and we'd bring, it, it, we'd, we'd be sitting around a table, there'd be Pastor Richard, there'd be myself, and there'd be another friend of ours who was a professor at the time, uh, Dr. Cliff Sanders. And the, the three of us, we are, we are mildly extroverted, <laughs> mildly extroverted and, and, and moderately passionate, and in that moderately passionate thing, it was like we were holding court right there around the table. And I'm sitting there listening to these two gentlemen go at it. And they're swapping stories left and right and, and just going at it. And it's just crazy to see the way that it all played out. And then I think, man, that was 1997. Well, that's just like three years ago. right? How many of you think 1997 was maybe like five, seven years ago? You know? uh, and I mean, the reality is, is that like, 2020 changed all of our concepts of time. When we went through COVID, I mean, COVID felt like forever. First of all, you were locked in your house with your kids, and so that, you know, made it feel even longer. You were locked in your house alone, which made it feel even longer. But like COVID, we're coming up on the fourth anniversary of that, right? It still feels fresh, but then it also feels like forever ago. But when I say something took place 10 years ago, I don't mean it took place in, 20, or in 2000 or 2001. 10 years ago was 2014. And so it's crazy for me to think that, that I've known Richard that long and he's been influential in my life. But it, what, interestingly enough is that what was, what was neat about the connection as I, as the years have passed is the way that ministries have overlapped. I have the privilege of being able to serve in the Dallas church which was uh, led and the facility built in 1969, 1970 by a minister named James Curtis. James Curtis pastored at the Dallas church in, from the mid-60s to the, the early 70s. Prior to that, he pastored in Odessa, Texas. And I pastored, prior to pastoring in Dallas, I pastored in Odessa, Texas. And James Curtis was highly influential at Mid-America, but before he went to Mid-America for his final years of ministry, he pastored in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at a church that was the Montgomery Place Church of God, which later became the New Beginnings Church of God. And, 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 uh, and I believe that you know, through the years that uh, Pastor Richard and Pastor uh, Jim Curtis, they had uh, uh, connections and relationships, and I know that they carried on for a number of different occasions. Uh, but it's just neat to be able to be here today to see the evolution of ministry, to see the way that God continues to work. And let me just share this with you briefly, and that is that if you're afraid that the church is dying, then you need to check your faith. You need to pause for just a second, and you need to go back to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes it really clear that he would be the one to build his church. He would be the one to build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail. 
So when we start panicking and getting afraid that the church is falling apart, that you know nobody wants to respond anymore, and, and what's going to happen to the next generation, and how's it all going to take place, when we begin to panic, we need to pause and we need to check our faith. And we need to realize that the church is not about us, it's about Jesus, and he's building it. And as he's building it, he's inviting us into the process. And the way that he will build us as the church is that he will build leaders and he will begin to work in the shape of a leader's heart. He will begin to work in the shape of a leader's heart. And that's what I want to talk to us about today in this first time, first hour or so that we have together. I want to talk to you about the shape of a leader's heart. And there are a lot of things that kind of go into that. There's a lot of ways that we kind of process that idea and think through it. But your heart... Your heart is where Jesus is working deeply. And if he's not working deeply in your heart, it's not because he's not trying, it's because you're fighting against him. And I want to, I want to recognize that, that leadership flows out of the heart. It's not just an action or an activity that we engage in, but it really flows out of the heart. And so with that in mind, it's really important that we think about the condition of one's heart. And many of you have been in church for a long time, read your Bibles at different segments, and you maybe are familiar with some different passages. And if you don't have your Bible, then you can Google, okay? I'm just going to tell you, if you don't have your Bible with you today, you don't have an electronic copy or a physical copy, you can always just Google, uh, you know, these, these passages that I'm going to reference today. But I, wanna, I want us to start in Proverbs chapter 4. Because if the, the shape of a leader's heart is the, you know, the, the, the key thing that we're focusing on this morning, we've got to do some, some checking and some understanding about the human heart. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, is probably familiar to many of you. You've probably shared it to a young person, or you've thought about it yourself, and you've tried to navigate through it. But you know, what's nice about Proverbs is that you can kind of jump in and jump out, and pick a verse and, and run with it for a little bit. It's, I call Proverbs like the fortune cookies of the Bible. You know, because like, it used to be fortune cookies, we'd open them up and we'd expect to read something about the future, but really it just revealed something about our character. And that, that's so much what happens in Proverbs. But Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 it says, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, maybe yours is a little different. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, what I would propose is that most of us, when we hear this verse and we think about this verse, we are thinking that we need to guard our heart from all of the outside influences that are coming at us. We want to make sure that you know, we are not being overwhelmed by society. We want to make sure that peer pressure is not something weighing on us and, and keeping us locked up. And, and, and we tend to think of all of the outside stuff. Guard your heart from a bad romance. Guard your heart from you know, the, the way that pride uh, can be puffed up because somebody says you're doing a good job. All these sort of things. But what if... What if the proverb writer is not telling us to guard our heart from what's external, but to guard our heart from what's internal? What if what's inside your heart is the problem? What if the, 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 the weaknesses, the challenges, and, and the, the dynamics that you face that don't go the way you expect them to are not because of what's outside of you, 
but because of what is inside you. I want you to think about that for just a moment. And many times, this is hard for us to admit that our hearts are broken. Our hearts are corrupted. Our hearts are, to use a theological phrase, depraved. And what we need to be aware of is that sometimes some of our actions flow from inside of us, and we don't know why we did that. And we need to pause and think about the shape of our heart. And so as you think about the the shape of your heart, uh, let's look at a couple other passages, and we're not going to read them in depth, but these are going to be familiar to you. You're going to be, oh yeah, this is starting to make sense. The heart is, according to the Bible, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and 10, is that the heart is deceitful. Think about that for just a moment. Look over in that passage. Maybe you want to highlight it. Maybe you want to come back and think and, and process it a little bit deeper and a little bit more. But it says, the human heart is the most deceitful thing and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Our hearts can't always be trusted. The shape of our heart in the beginning is incredibly important for us to think about as we're not only thinking about how is it that I'm doing as a leader, but how am I raising up others to be a leader? What is it that I am looking for? And and the truth is we're looking for somebody who has a good heart, but a good heart isn't just naturally there. Look over into what Jesus has to say. I mean, Jeremiah is heavy enough, but look over what Jesus has to say in Matthew's gospel in the 15th chapter. And Jesus is speaking to his, his, uh, his disciples, and, and they're navigating through the variety of different you know, issues that are at the time. But here in this particular section, Jesus looks at him and he says, Hey, the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and all sexual immorality, theft and lying and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands, that won't defile you. We get all caught up in in the behaviors that people are engaging in, and we fail to check their heart. We fail to see what's really going on inside of a person. And and what's really going on is that most of us, we want to judge others by their actions and their behaviors, and we forgot to check our own heart and to check the shape of our own heart and see what's flowing up out of us. Jesus says that all of our actions are overflows of our heart. And so what is the shape of a leader's heart? Why is it that we live in a world where leadership is so contentious? Why is it that even in the church, we struggle to understand how it is to lead? It's quite simply because many of us have not done the heart examination that needs to be done. We haven't been honest about the condition of our heart. Ezekiel, God is speaking through this prophet Ezekiel. Look over in the 36th chapter, verse 26 through 27. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. 
A stony, stubborn heart. This is church. I know it's not a church service. We didn't sing any songs in advance, and some of you are like, my heart's not softened yet, so we've got we to gotta pause for just a moment here, and, we, and, and we've got to acknowledge the realities, and, we, and let's just do a little confession. Can we do that? Can we pause right now and let's just, let's just pray with one another as we think about the condition of our hearts. I've dropped some heavy truth, some things that maybe you're not even entirely comfortable with, but can we pause for just a moment right now and pray because the rest of what we're going to talk about is going to confront the stony, stubborn heart. So join me in prayer. Lord, we pause right now. Not because you haven't been in our midst. Not because we are running ahead of you. But we are pausing right now to acknowledge that you are here. We're pausing right now to acknowledge some of our own brokenness and our own defiledness and our own weakness, our own stubbornness and our own hard-heartedness. So we join with the church that has prayed for years. Merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By what I have done and what I have left undone, I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I am fully, I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. For the sake of your son Jesus, have mercy on me and forgive me, that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. If we can't be honest and confess our own heart's challenges, then we won't be able to lead people through theirs. If we can't be honest and and recognize what it is that we have in us that is deceitful and lying and broken, then, then the world around us will look at us and they will say, wait a second, man, your actions don't match your words. And they'll be looking to try and figure out why And it's really because our actions are an overflow of our broken hearts and we haven't resolved, we haven't addressed, we haven't dealt with it first. And and the truth is that too many of us, we are just running wild and free, doing our own thing as our heart pleases, thinking that our heart is right. But the proverb writer says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. And sometimes we have to guard it from where it is going, what it is doing. I don't know if you've thought about the actual blood pumping muscle. Some of you have had heart surgery, and so you're more aware of the condition. Some of you have been through those stress tests, as you know what your heart is capable of. But, you know, think about the way that it works. The heart processes spent blood, and it sends it to the lungs, and then rejuvenates that blood with oxygen and sends it back to the heart, which then pumps it to the rest of the body. So I want you to think about it in this way, and that the heart, it receives the experiences. Spent blood is an experience. And so your heart is being overloaded with what you've experienced in life. You've been through some trauma. You've been through some pain. You've been through some joys. You've been through some happinesses. 
and your heart is receiving those, but the experience, you're kind of depleted. You're kind of worn out. And so you're needing a rejuvenation. And so as it works its way down through the, the heart, the physical blood pumping muscle, it, it goes through, it shoots in, and it gets shot further, and then shot to the lungs. And think about this song that we used to sing some 20 years ago. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is the air that I breathe. Your very word spoken to me. So our hearts have had a lot of experiences. It's just shooting through. And now we need to saturate it in oxygen. We need to saturate it in the breath of God. So that way then when it comes back in and it deals with the other side of the heart, it can go forth and flow out into our actions. Flow forth out into our physical actions and our emotional actions and our mental actions because it is bringing fresh rejuvenation. But here's the thing is that many of us, we don't recognize the role of God's word and God's direction in rejuvenating us and giving us fresh air. And so what I want to talk about is I want to talk a little bit further about the shape of a leader's heart. And, you know, preachers, they like to do uh, little memory tools. Some preachers, they'll give you like three points in a poem. Um, I never learned that, and I'm not a good poet, so I can't do that very well, all right? Three points in a poem, it just doesn't work well for me. Uh, some preachers, they, uh, they, they have, you know, every word that is a point starts with the same letter. So they've got the power, and they've got the promise, and they've got, you know, something else. I don't know what it is, right? Um, and, and usually, I'm not very good at, at those sort of things either. But lately, for whatever reason, I've been on this kick of acronyms. I've been on this kick of acronyms and, and like a word, and then I break it out into multiple different parts. And so I want to give you an acronym for shape, right? Now, if you prefer Spanish, maybe you want to, you know, recognize that the word shape doesn't necessarily form a nice acronym into Spanish in the same way because the word doesn't mean the same thing, but, but forma. And so we're going to use both, all right? We're going to put it up there in both ways. But I want to start with the letter S, all right, the letter S in the, the sense of the shape of our heart starts with a sense of self. It starts with a sense of ourself, who we are, who are you? And, you know, the thing is that some of us have an inflated view of ourselves and others have a deflated view of yourselves. Most of you, uh, all you know of me is what Pastor Richard shared. And just the briefly, the bit about what I shared about me. But let me tell you a little bit more about me and kind of the things that shape me. And then we'll look at what the scripture has to say. I grew up in what I would describe a typical American household. My parents were young and they got married and I'm a honeymoon baby. That's what they tell me. That's what they tell me. My dad and my mom, they were working at a local restaurant, and they figured that wasn't enough to, to pay the rent in the trailer house that we were living in. And, and so my dad joined the Army. And as he joined the Army after I was born, we you know, went through basic training, we went through advanced training, and then we were stationed in Germany. And while we were stationed in Germany, my parents, their marriage fell apart, and they divorced. And so my brother and myself and my mom, we left Germany, left my dad behind. I grew up in what I would describe a typical American family in that we experienced divorce. 
And then when I was eight years old, my mother was, uh, was murdered by an ex-boyfriend. That shapes the trajectory for life. By the grace of God, I've been able to work through some things, but I didn't know God at eight. And my dad, he rushed from, he was back in the States, he rushed from Tennessee to Texas to rescue us. And then my grandmother fought with my dad for custody over who was going to take care of us because my maternal grandmother didn't trust my dad. And he had, she had all sorts of hurry. So I remember sitting in court while my grandmother and my father wrestle over who's going to raise us. Ended up being with my dad. My dad then remarried. I don't know if this sounds anywhere close to the American lifestyle that you live, but it's actually more common than what we realize. People go through divorce. They go through some family trauma. There is a a fight that occurs, and then there is a, a hope that opens as a new marriage starts. Wasn't long before we moved back to Germany because my dad was still in the army, and then we came back to the United States. And then my my dad and my stepmom they 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 announced they're pregnant, so I've got a sister coming. And then my dad goes to war, and somewhere along the way of going to war or before going to war or whatever, he had had another breakdown in the marriage, and we almost lost that marriage too. My parents had to work to recover that marriage. I graduated high school. My, you know, a lot of kids, they move out when they graduate high school. My typical American family story was I didn't get to move out. My family moved out. They moved to a new location because my dad was no longer in the army, and he moved to a new spot, new location, and, and here I was left to try and figure it out on my own. Well, the good news is, and this is where I think my story began to change dramatically, is that just before I graduated high school, the second semester of my senior year, that's just before you graduate high school, my best friend started inviting me to church. And I didn't have anything else going on, so I went. And then I found that there was this authentic relationship, authentic community, and I turned into an authentic worshiper, and I surrendered my life to Jesus. And so my sense of self began to change. I grew up as a kid whose family had never really held marriages together, and, and I, I was afraid to get married, and as Richard already told you, I got married uh, you know, some, almost 25 years ago now, and I'm married to my first wife. All right? And it's part of the, the way that God changes my story and the way that he, he radically moved things forward. And, and, and here's the deal. It's like many of us, if we don't take time to evaluate who we are, where we're coming from, and what's going on in our lives, then we won't understand the grace of God that's been working in us and our sense of self will be either devalued or overvalued. Devalued or overvalued. And, and here's what I wanted to do. I want to pause for a moment. I want to look at Solomon as, as we understand him describing himself in Ecclesiastes. And in the first chapter, we see uh, that you know, he, he sets himself up. He said, I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom and madness and folly but I learned firsthand that pursuing all this was chasing after 
the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge is to increase sorrow. Where is your sense of self start? Does it start with just you? Your sense of understanding as to, you know, kind of where you're going to move and how it is that you're going to be. The shape of your heart starts with a sense of yourself. And is that sense of self just based in what you possess and what you have around you? Solomon was in the position where he said, hey, look, I'm, I got more than any king before me. I'm wiser than the rest of them. And so therefore, I'm going to lean into it and try and figure it all out. Let me just tell you, if you're a leader who's trying to figure it all out, you will exhaust yourself. I can tell you because I've been one of those leaders. Even though I've felt the extraordinary power of God's grace and salvation in my life, there are times when I've been a leader who just wants to lean in on what it is that I have and my understanding and, and my possessions, and that sense of self can derail me quickly. It can derail me just like, arguably, it derailed Solomon. I mean, think about it for just a moment. I mean, he got the whole kingdom, and he starts with this great you know, uh, moment with God when he says, God says to him, what do you want? He says, I want the wisdom to be able to govern your people properly. And somehow or another, he ends up married to how many wives and has how many concubines? I'm not sure that that was wise. And it, it, Scripture tells us that his heart drifted away from God as a result of that. And so when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you've got to understand that, that Solomon is trying to navigate all of this sense of self, all of this sense of what is it, what is it. And he really tells us the beginning. It's all meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. But is that really what it is? Well, when left to ourselves, our sense of self, we can easily walk away with a sense of it's meaningless. It has no purpose. But there is the scribe who adds some additional thoughts in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The closing moments of this the scribe says, the whole, this, 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 that's the whole story. So here's now my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Sense of self. Have you evaluated who you are? Have you evaluated what's going on in your life? Are you uh, presenting yourself openly and honestly to God that even your secrets are revealed to him? Or are you just in a position that it's all about me and what it is that I can do, who it is that I will be, and how it is that I will do? The sense of self is the beginning place of the shape of our heart. And more often than not, the sense of self is deprived of the breath of God. Because all of our experiences are flowing in, and we're not really sure about it all. And we need some rejuvenation. So that takes us to the H, right, in the shape of heart, or the O in the form of, and that is that we, we need to hear the word of God. As leaders, we need to be those who are hearing the word of God and digging into it intently and recognizing the significance of it. Moses, when he is wrapping up his time and leading the people of Israel, he's giving them the second hearing of his instructions, the second time around of what it is that God's story is and how it is that he wants them to be as a community. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. It's the second hearing. 
and in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he writes this about leaders. He says, the king, uh, let's see, verse 18, he says, the king, when he sits on his throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instructions on a scroll in the presence of the priest. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way, that way he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying the terms of these instructions and decrees. Now, many of us, if you're like me, probably read the word king, and you think, well, that's King Charles. Or that's the king of a nation. Some, some great boundary-ridden area. But here's what I want us to understand is that when we're reading through the Bible and we hear phrases like king of kings or when we hear, you know, so-and-so was the king of this area or the king of that area, particularly those who were like king of Moab, Moab and king of, you know, Assyria and, and some of those other places that were very close to Israel, they didn't necessarily have these vast domains. Many of them functioned more like mayors. Many of them function more like mayors and that they were the, the king of a city. But I want you to think about this. If you're a leader, you're a king of the area that has been assigned to you. You are a governor of that space. You are the mayor. You have a responsibility as the leader in that moment. And so how is it that you're going to counteract the sense of self that can go, this is all meaningless, or overpuff yourself up? How is it you can counteract that? You need to engage in the word of God. You and I need to engage in the Word of God. And I love that Moses said that the new leader must write out all of these instructions. Imagine if you had to copy segments or the entirety of the Bible. How long would that take you? Might take you an hour, right? <laughs> Actually, it probably take you a little bit longer. I mean, we've got 66 books, and, and just Psalm 119 alone is a lot of work, right? But imagine if that was the only one that you wrote. Imagine that you took time to personally scribe down Psalm 150, right, which is a short one, or Psalm 119, which is the long one, which is 150 verses. And you began to write down these things. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 119, how might a person keep from sinning against you, O Lord, by obeying your commands? This is what it's about. It's like we miss the opportunity to have our lives reinforced with the breath of God because we ignore the word of God. And then we wonder why it's so hard to obey the word of God. It's hard to obey the Word of God because we've not allowed the Word of God to saturate our hearts. We've not allowed the Word of God to go into us and shape us. Instead, we treat the Word of God as a tool for someone else rather than a chisel for our own lives. The Word of God has to apply to you before it can apply to anyone else. You can't lead someone where you haven't been is the adage that we hear. And so if you want people to experience transformation in their lives, then your life needs to be transformed. And the way that your life is going to be transformed is by the God who intervenes and changes your story. The God who shows up and says that you who grew up in a divorced household, you who grew up with family trauma and pain, I am coming in and I am bringing an end to that if you will listen to me. If you will follow me, I will bring that to a new place, a new horizon, a new space that you didn't expect 
that you can't predict because all you've got to do is listen and respond to me, and I'll do it. Think about that. You and I as leaders have a responsibility to hear the word of God. Now, in English, when we hear the word hear, we think it's just something that we take in. We hear a podcast. We hear a song. But in Hebrew, there was no difference between listen, hear, and obey. It's all the same. That what we would listen to, what we would hear, we would act on. Do you act on the instructions of God? Are they active in your life that they're shaping your heart? Oh, it's so hard to kind of navigate that. But what does that look like? How does that really play out? Well, that acting is acting in grace and compassion. Acting in grace and compassion. If, if the world looks at the church today, what's the narrative? We're hypocrites, right? Well, the truth is, everybody's a hypocrite. Everybody's a hypocrite, right? Everybody's an actor at some level or another. There are days all right, that we will act in a certain way that doesn't necessarily match the fullness of our heart. But there are also days when we, you know, uh, act in ways that actually match us. Some of you are, are big movie fans, I'm guessing. And uh, I grew up, uh, you know, watching the same movies over and over and over again because when we were in Germany, we had this, you know, we took a whole bunch of pirated movies from HBO on VHS and took them over there and I watched them over. You guys remember back in the day when you would just record right off of the, how many of you are like that? How many of your centers like that? Good. All right. Good. Good to know. I wasn't the center. My dad was the center, but I watched, I received the results of his sin. Okay. And, and we watched over and over these movies and, and, uh, and, and I don't know how many times I watched Red Dawn, how many times I watched Dirty Dancing. I mean, we watched a lot of Patrick Swayze, right? You know, because it was in the eighties and everybody watched it. I don't know how many times I watched Rambo and how many times I watched Commando with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger or Terminator, all these different movies, you know, that, that are uh, embedded into our culture and our society today. But, you know, back then, you know, it was like I thought that Sylvester Stallone was Rocky or was Rambo. And so if I had met Sylvester Stallone, I would have thought that he could pull out that bow and arrow and shoot at 700 yards and cause the helicopter to explode. I mean, that's what I would have thought because he was the actor and the actor and, and his identity were not separated. And this is the great challenge that our culture is running into today in that we now have people who are Hollywood superstars who fall into uh, inappropriate action shall we say? And then they lose their job because the company that hired them, the movie studio, is kind of going, hey, wait a second, your actions are now a reflection of the character that you've played, which is produced by our movie studio, and therefore we are now requiring you to behave differently, but because you behave badly, we're kicking you out. Man, that's a hard place. Hey, you, only the church used to do that. Only the church used to do that. Now Hollywood's doing that, and the church is going, well, you know, uh, I mean, you know, how is it that we are going to act is really important. And at some levels, we're all actors, but at another level, it, you know, we have to understand that 
Our character that we act as is how people understand us. And so when you are at church and you're all smiles and you are kind and you're shaking hands and you're encouraging people to move along in their journey of faith, uh, they get the impression that you are somebody who really loves Jesus. But then when they go with you to the restaurant, well, wow, some of you already know where this is going. That or I got on your toes. I'm not sure. Which was that, you know? All right. Uh, When you go to the restaurant and the server comes over and they take your order and they were a little longer getting to the table than what you want and the hangriness started rising up and and the sense of, I need to eat now, began to rise up and you, you were short with the server, but the person that you had just greeted at the church was there with you. Maybe they're eating with you or maybe they're at the table over and they're watching how you treat the server, there's a disconnect in their mind. And they're beginning to go, wait a second, which one's the real one? How, how does this play out? How does this work? And, and so they're, they're, they're trying to figure it out. And so you know, here's the thing is like, we need to recognize that even when we are depleted as leaders, people are watching us. And so how is it that we're going to act in grace and compassion all the time, and regardless of what we're going through? Look over to what Paul had to say to the early church in Colossians. This is my favorite uh, book of the Bible, really, if I think about it. And because it's short, it's even better. Okay, uh, if you've not taken time to to navigate through uh, the, the the four chapters of Colossians, right? I mean, it's it's one, two, three, four. It's like four pages long at most. You can read this while waiting in line for your kids. You can read this while waiting for the order to be brought from the McDonald's uh, to out to your car because you did the curbside pickup. I mean, you can you can read this really really easily, but uh, it is so powerful. Colossians is. And, and in the, the last portion of it, uh, of chapter 3, it says, Since God chose you to be holy, to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Now, when we read this list of activities here, I don't really have to describe what that fully looks like because we all have experienced it at different levels. Tender-hearted kindness or mercy. Think about that. Is that what your life is demonstrating? Is that how people look at you all the time? I'll be honest. It's easy to do it at Sunday morning. It's even easy to do it in public settings at the restaurant. But how about with my kids or my wife or my in-laws? 
Like, how easy is it to always act in tenderhearted compassion? How easy is it always to, to, to kind of follow these instructions? It's not easy. But this is what we are aiming for. This is what we are aiming for. And when the world watches the church, this is what they're expecting to see. This is what they're expecting to see. And so when we're running around and we have these characters that the media puts up that are finger pointing and are calling names and holding signs and making people feel unwelcome, then the media is shaping the narrative about the church and a lot of people are buying it until they meet somebody who actually believes in Jesus, that they actually know, that they actually see the acts of kindness and compassion and grace flow out. You see, many people begin their first understanding of the church by the media narrative, but they come to know Jesus because they know somebody who knows Jesus who's a part of the church. And they begin to change their understanding. They meet a leader whose heart is shaped by the word of God, whose actions represent the way of God. So I want you to think about who you're in interactions with. Who are the people that you're talking to on a regular basis? What are they hearing from you? What are they seeing from you? How are you engaging them? What's going on in those moments? Because they're watching us. They're watching us. And particularly if you carry a title of leader. Well, I'm just a board member. You're a leader. I just work in the children's classroom. You're a leader. I just help with the teenagers to take them on chaperoning trips. Uh, You're a leader. I just stand at the door and, and hold it open for people. You're a leader. I just put chairs and tables up. You're a leader. I, I, just, I just play in the band. You're a leader. I just, I, 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 I just do my thing. You're a leader because people are watching you. John Maxwell says that the essence of leadership is influence. The essence of leadership is influence. How is your influence on display? Well, I, I don't really do a lot. You're doing more than you realize. So act in grace and compassion. And then assume a posture of humility. This is the P in shape. Take on a posture of humility. This is what our world wants to see more than anything. They want to see the church not demanding its rights, but they want to see the church look like Jesus. Look back, if you were in Colossians, just back a couple pages to Philippians. I said Colossians is probably my favorite book. This segment of Philippians is my like, overall favorite passage. I, I pray this often. I think through this often. This in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrew, or Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 and following. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Can I read the rest of it? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. 
our Savior did not come with a chariot and an army or a megaphone or great crowds telling the world the way it should be. Our Savior emptied himself. Think about the significance of this, this the opening phrase. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held onto, something to cling to, but rather emptied himself. He had all of the authority and power that this universe has to offer, that if you believe in multiverses have to offer. I don't care. He's the creator of it all. In Colossians it says that he holds it all together, and yet he empties himself empties himself, gives up his divine privileges. Now, we, it's one thing to give up your divine privileges to like set aside the crown. It's another to say that you're the creator of everything. You hold it all together, and now you're going to show up in a form where you can't even feed yourself, where you need someone to wipe the stink off you because you have soiled yourself. You need someone to feed you and help you learn to walk and talk. Jesus needed that because he submitted himself to that. He lowered himself to the lows of lows of position. Do we do that as leaders? Is that our posture? Or is our posture one of, no, look, I'm right, you're wrong, you must come alongside with me. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to go get 16 other people who believe me, and we're going to come back at you, and we're going to come at you, and we're going to say, hey, I'm right, we're right, you're wrong, and we're going to just raise a bigger protest. That's not what we're to be doing, and I'm so grateful that, that you have a pastor who doesn't behave that way. I'm so grateful for the way that I've seen the testimony of New Beginnings over Facebook through the years, that... I've been able to see that that is not the posture that is out of this facility, out of this community. But let me just tell you, it's not something to take for granted, nor is it something to get overly excited about and assume that it's always going to be true. It's something that must be continually checked. Because if we don't continually check it, humility will turn to pride. And sometimes... We'll be so proudful that we'll exhibit false humility. We'll be, oh, you know, we just do this because we love Jesus. When the truth is, I do this because I get personal worth out of this. I do this because it makes me feel better about who I am. I do this because, you know, I, I look down upon people and I just want them to live a better life. There's all sorts of things that rise up in that false humility, humility category. So we've got to constantly check it. What do you check it against? You check it against the Word of God. When you read the Word of God, you're opening yourself up for the Spirit of God to work in your life in a fresh and amazing way. And you're submitting yourself. You're like You can open up the Scripture and you can pray this prayer. You can say, Lord, I've read this passage of Scripture before, but today I'm asking that you illuminate it to me in a new way. I'm joining in with what David said. Lord, search me and try me. Reveal any unclean thing to me. If there's anything that goes against you, I need you to show it to me. I need you to show it to me now. Because I want to be humble before you. I want to submit to you. Humility is an act of submission. And that is not an easy thing because our culture doesn't promote that. Our culture promotes powering up, not 
stepping down. But the shape of a servant is one who is engaged to serve. The shape of a leader is the servant. Are we really engaged to serve, or are we just there for our own benefit? I'm going to look real quick over here at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Use whatever gift you've got for not your benefit, but for the benefit of others. And I know too many people who are running around going, well, I don't really have the gift like so-and-so had. Peter didn't say if your gift is equal to someone else's gift, use it. He said whatever gift you have, use that gift. And so you may not be able to preach like Pastor Richard, but that doesn't prevent you from speaking. That doesn't prevent you from teaching. That doesn't prevent you from preaching. Now, he may not let you preach here, but you know, <laughs> right? You know, but you, you get what I'm saying. Use whatever gift you have, not for your benefit. See, this is what happens. This is why a lot of pastors are really protective of their pulpit is because some people believe they have the gift of preaching and they need to prove it not for the sake of others, but for themselves. They need to prove it for the sake of themselves, and they're using their gift for their own benefit and their own glory. Lord, you just don't understand. I, I mean, I, I know that I'm gifted as a vocalist, and I can sing, but that, that worship pastor Michael just won't let me on the worship team. I used to think that I could sing. And then I met people who could. And then years later, I watched American Idol, and I thought, man, there's a lot of people out there who thought they could but can't. <laughs> right? Are, are you with me? It's like there's some people. I, I, I recently had a conversation with, with a minister who told me that she has to preach because it's the only time she feels alive. And I'm thinking, I've seen you preach. But if, and, and, and it's good. It wasn't bad. It was really good preaching. But if you're preaching for your own benefit because it makes you feel alive, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. So if you're, if you're you know, engaging in a way of serving others because you're hoping it will make you feel better, you're in the wrong place and you're doing the wrong thing. And you and I need to recognize that it's not about doing it for our own benefit. The shape of the leader's heart, when it's depraved, it will seek to you know, satisfy its own interest. But when it is submitted to God and it is listening to his instructions and it's allowing the work of God, the breath of God to rejuvenate it, then it can serve others well. I want you to think about the significance of how the blood flows into the system and it flows into the heart. It is initially coming in. It is oxygen depleted. If it just went back out and didn't go through the lungs, the body is going to die. It needs the rejuvenation of the work of God. 
the word of God, the breath of God that comes when the blood pushes through the heart into the lungs. Are you in that position that you're surrendering and submitting to the way of God so that you can be saturated? Saturated in his grace, saturated in his compassion, saturated in his kindness, saturated in his goodness, saturated in his mercy, saturated in his salvation, saturated in his identity. So that way, then it flows out of you and it engages others around you in a way that is not about you. It is Christ in you, working and showing mercy and kindness to others so that they can be saved, so that they can be shaped, so that they can grow. You see, our world has a messed up view of leadership, and it's not new. It's always been around because the shape of a person's heart is oftentimes left unchecked and therefore remains prideful and is not guarded, and all the evil things rise up. And Jesus knew this well. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says these famous words that we can so easily take for granted because we've been 2,000 years after Jesus said this. But in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27, the disciples are arguing among themselves who would be greatest in the kingdom. Now, I don't know if you find that funny or not, but I find that funny. They've been walking with Jesus for almost three and a half years at this point, and they're arguing among themselves. Jesus told them, In this world, kings and great men lord it over their people. That they're called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here for I am among you as one who serves. I am one who serves, is what Jesus said. And he's saying that among you, it must be the same. We have people who are, you know, in our culture, left and right, we see them fighting to rise to the top, wanting to be the one who is the greatest and, and best, But Jesus is saying, really, it should be more of a race to be the one who holds the door open rather than to be the one the door is held open for. It should be the one who's willing to get dirty rather than the one who is afraid of dirt. It should be the one who is willing to bring the food and water to the table rather than them being the one who is expecting others to bring food and water to your table. It should be the one who bows down and washes the feet of the people who are dirty rather than being the one who's standing at the door waiting for your feet to be washed. The shape of a leader's heart is best seen in their ability to serve. How's your serve? How are you doing as it comes to submitting yourself 
Better yet, what's your plan to shape your heart? What is your plan? Do you have an active plan of engaging in it? Paul wrote to Timothy, and he says, look, physical training is of some merit, but training in godliness and holiness is much more important. And so do you have a plan? Let me just tell you, leaders, if you don't have a plan of how it is that you're going to engage in the word of God with some regularity, you will burn out. You will run out of oxygen. If you're busy serving every week and you are not finding ways to replenish and rejuvenate, then you need to hit the pause button and you need to speak to those who are in leadership over you and say, I need time to be replenished because I'm spent. If you don't have relationship with other leaders who blow fresh wind into you that is the wind of God, then you need to pause and you need to figure out how is it that I can get in leadership community. Because when you're leading all the time, you're running out of oxygen. And when you're running out of oxygen, you're on the brink of dying. And people will see the disease and the unhealthiness. And it will cause them to struggle to see Jesus. The shape of a leader's heart is what matters. How is, how is your heart being shaped? Pray with me. Lord, we've wrestled through some of these passages that seem so familiar to us and so common, but yet at the same time, oh God, as we've wrestled through them, they have been put in the context of leadership, in the context of our own personal heart. Some in this room today have been in a position where they have felt their heart dying because it's puffed up by pride or a number of other things, and they just haven't reconnected with you. So I pray this morning is a little bit of fresh air for them, but I pray also, God, that they would dig into praying with you, talking to you, reading what it is that you've instructed, engaging in community where they can be rejuvenated. So that way we're not left alone to ourselves. Help us, Lord, to guard our hearts because it can easily turn away from you. And not only does it influence the course of our life, it influences the course of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.